Sevilla and I are here today to talk about DC Schindler. So Sevilla has read the book. Um, I, I read this book. Plato's Critique of Impure Reason. Reason. And I've read this in my book club with a couple of other people from the corner. In fact, people that I met from um, Thunder Bay. And I struggled my way through this book, Love and the Postmodern Predicament. Um, DC Schindler has a wonderful heart and a wonderful mind, but he is a very, um, very precise thinker. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I work my way through two or three pages and I grab hold of the main idea of what he's saying, and then I walk away for a while, when I come back, it's like, what was that about again? <laughs> <laughs> I had that same, you know, and we, we, and, and in, in my case, we really got into it, you know, and one of the fellows in the group was is sort of a Plato expert. So um, uh, Rob Gray. And so we, we went into it extensively and I remember, you know, like it's hard to retain the complexity of, of his work. Although when you're reading it, it's really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that was one of the, that was one of the things that I felt about this book too, was I was reading and I was thinking, Oh, I've got to tell so-and-so about this, or I've got to send this mm -hmm. a photo of this page to such and such, or got to post this on Twitter. This is amazing. <laughs> but then once it's over, it's like, what was the main idea, you know? And yeah. so what we're going to do today is we're going to try to drill down and grab hold of the main idea mm -hmm. because his whole thing is he's talking about the relationship between love and beauty mm -hmm. and uh, and obviously peripherally love and the transcendentals in general. So um, to get us started, I want to play one clip <clears throat> from a video that um, that uh, Michael had sent me and it's it's his definition of love. And I think um, that that will be maybe a good place to start mm -hmm. and then we can start to look at some of the clips that you noticed from mm -hmm. uh, when you were watching the episode that I did with him. So um, can you see the screen there? <clears throat> okay, so 
what I get out of that is that <clears throat> the this the soul's response to beauty, love as the soul's response to beauty. I think I think he must be saying that one aspect of love is the soul's response to beauty, because obviously, if uh, we accept the verse that the, in the Bible that says that God is love, mm -hmm. then love is way bigger than anything we can mm -hmm. comprehend. But one aspect of love is the soul's response to beauty, which he says is the reception of beautiful form, which I think relates to the whole Persig thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's a reception that transforms the appetite. Now, the appetite is kind of like the, the senses, the soul, yeah. all yeah. this stuff together. It transforms the appetite. So, so beauty changes us inwardly, or this aspect of love changes us inwardly. So love is received, and it changes us to so as to be suited to the object. Well, what I take that to mean is if, if my if I'm created to love God, there's another place in the scripture where it says, we God is love and we love because he first loved us. So he loves us and that love transforms us to prepare us to love him. And so in this way, beauty is sort of this gift to prepare us our appetite so that we will recognize God and be able to love him. So can you, um, along with that definition, can you define beauty also? Like what, what is the sense that you get that Schindler means by beauty? Well, in, in that other video where the sound mm -hmm. is so terrible, <laughs> I yeah. apologize for that. It's very interesting video, but the sound mm -hmm. is terrible. Um, When he talks about beauty, he talks about beauty as being, well, first of all, that the transcendentals, goodness, truth, and beauty, mm -hmm. goodness and truth are generally taken in somewhat through the intellect. And so people have gotten to the place where if they're not interested in those things, you know, like in today's world, mm -hmm. like you know, who are you to say what's good? Who are you to say what's true? Right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. right? But beauty cuts right through all of that. Yeah. Because yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't go through the intellect. It doesn't yeah. go through the left side of the brain, right? Mm -hmm. Beauty comes in through the, through the right hemisphere. Okay. So that's what you're saying. So when you said in, in this, in your talk with him, with, with Dave, David Schindler, you, um, you said you reminded, you were telling him about McGillchrist and you said, mm -hmm. Only in the right hemisphere can do we are, are we connected to the outside reality. The mm -hmm. left hemisphere is taking all that information, messing around with it. Mm -hmm. You know, and but but the information comes in through the right hemisphere. Mm -hmm. So so is that how um, is the is beauty sort of the interface with reality in that sense that gets into the broad you know, understanding the, the receptivity, which would have to be, and I'm not trying to, to break it down, you know, mm -hmm. neurobiologically, I'm just doing it through the, the McGilchrist lens through the, through the right hemisphere, let's say. Well, I don't think that everything that the right hemisphere brings in is beauty, but certainly yeah. the right hemisphere is the only aspect of us that has access to beauty. And so if you, if you, um, if you perceive beauty, 
in that way then when it comes in then that that good thing let's say that then it's identified as good or it's identified as true in the intellectual sense um well yeah i mean let let me first let me back up just a second yeah. and try to describe when he talks about beauty in this other video uh -huh. he talks about let's say you see a beautiful painting or a beautiful mm -hmm. sunset mm -hmm. it it comes into you in a way that it's it's you you take it up into you and it yeah. it it changes you it sort of carves out something in you to make a space for itself so even if you don't even if you don't want to pay attention to it <clears throat> it takes up residence in you mm -hmm. right yeah. So you can, you can avoid beauty. You can walk around with your eyes closed, I guess. But <laughs> there are just things that happen in life that come in like that. And it's an uptake. It's almost like um, serotonin reuptake. In <laughs> like that, right? it, it comes up uh -huh. into you and it affects you. It, that's why he uses this word passion, mm -hmm. um, which is the biblical word pestiane i guess it which means that it um like another place that that's used is in when jesus says suffer the little children to come to me that word suffer is the same verb there it sort of means permit mm -hmm. so you're you're permitting it you're permitting something to come into you to change you mm -hmm. you have to permit it it, it's um some people i guess can close themselves off to beauty you know sure. take your little chinny chin chin out and say i'm not going to let that happen but in order to be changed by beauty you kind of have to permit it to happen yeah so so yes when when beauty comes in and fills you i think one of the the clips that you um sent me was him talking about when he first came to christ Mm -hmm. shortly before he first came to Christ, he's walking along a beach and he has this insight. I mean, he thinks it's this tremendous insight. He's a high school kid mm -hmm. that selfishness is the root of all our pro problems. Well, it was a very beautiful insight to him because it explained the whole world to him in a sort of a way. So he took that insight in and then it it began to define for him truth and goodness and everything else because he, he brought in this beautiful insight. Well, then of course he began to see it from a fuller perspective when he, when he talked to his father about it. But um, I think it's, yeah, I think it is like that. You can have the experience of beauty first and then you can go and you can start analyzing it as to its truth or its goodness. And, mm -hmm. and that's probably a necessity because you can see something that seem that that gives you that impact of beauty, but maybe there are such things as false beauty and true beauty. I don't know. You know, maybe there are some things that are so beautiful to us that they're not good for us. Well, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. 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 yeah so um all right, so I think I understand. It's not necessarily the way things look, right? I mean, it can be that. 
Well, I mean, music can have the same impact yeah. on you. Um, an, an idea can have the same impact on you. Yeah, this is why so many mathematicians are just, yeah. they Let live in the mathematical realm because it's so beautiful to them that they never right. want to leave it, right? Yeah, I think I, I understand. So so this is what Persig says about mathematical beauty. I've read this a few times, but it's it's really, um, Poincaré. so this is Poincaré. Mm-hmm. Um, Poincaré. I mean, I, I'm not a mathematician, I, but I've heard that name for sure. So, well, he's supposed to be one of the great geniuses yeah. of all time. Um, Poincaré. Then, um, this is like the true work of an in inventor consists in choosing among these combinations as to eliminate the useless ones, or rather, avoid the trouble of making them and the rules. Blah blah blah. Then he hypothesized that the selection is made. So you se you select, you know, which mathematical equation. The selection is made on what he called the subliminal self, an entity that corresponds exactly what features call pre-intellectual awareness. The subliminal self, Poincaré said, looks at the large number of solutions to a problem, but only the interesting ones break into the domain of consciousness. It's kind of like relevance realization in a way. Um, mathematical solutions are selected by the subliminal self on the basis of mathematical beauty, of harmony, of number and forms, of geometric elegance. This is this is a true aesthetic feeling, which all mathematicians know. Yeah, and what's interesting to me about that is he's talking about selections. Mm -hmm. Well, it means like there's a menu out there for you. It's yeah. there. It's just there in the universe that menu is there and then you get to select from that menu <laughs> yeah so so we're you know you see where we're beginning to go with this we're starting to go to the, with that same pattern that we talk about all the time mm -hmm. that relevance realization describes the left right hemisphere it's kind of interesting <laughs> well because i think the left right hemisphere there's it's not it's not a mistake that we're built that way because that's kind totally. of the way the yeah. universe is built. Yeah. We're, we're built as a microcosm of the universe in a way. Mm -hmm. So, um, because, and I know McGill Chris doesn't like that idea of the masculine and the feminine, but mm -hmm. whether it's masculine or feminine or not, I tend to think of the two hemispheres as being in a marriage. They yeah. have to work together, whether they I like it right. or not. <laughs> Well, I like, it. I like anywhere, it. right? No, I like that. I think You're committed. Whether, <laughs> whether Milton McGriff, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's let's go back and look at some of these these clips that you had. Do you want to look first? Do you want to look at that one where he talked oh. about self selfishness or um no, the way you described it is fine. Um, what I think is interesting is it occurred at a time, you know, that he also was reading person. But but let's. Do you want to start with the first one? That's that's um, sure. Let me being as love, and this is a paradigm shift, putting undefinable love in the driver's seat. Yeah, oh, there's just a few things he said in there that's so interesting that reminds us of you know some of the corner concerns. Okay. By his oh, insistence oops, oops. that uh, love needs to be understood ontologically, that we need to think of the meaning of being as love, and and that so radically changes the way that one conceives of it the one in fact <clears throat> i think it changes the way one experiences it um and certainly uh, okay now i didn't understand why he got so excited about that because 
and I am totally not a philosopher, but that just seems so obvious to me that if if the scripture says that God is love, then then that's 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 the you know then that is is being right. So, mm-hmm. um, but for him, this being able to see love as being was very important to him. But God is being. God is the is the source of all being, and God is love, and that means that love is the source of all being. So, I mean, aren't, aren't they? That whole thing seems to me that mm-hmm. even to say God is love is right there, like a trinity. Yeah, because God and is and love are 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 a unit, right? Yes. Anyway, let me back up and yeah, start him yeah. over again because I didn't have the screen up when we when we uh, did that. By his insistence that uh, love needs to be understood ontologically, that we need to think of the meaning of being as love, and and that so radically changes the way that one conceives of it the one in fact i think it changes the way one experiences it um and certainly um uh, the way one one thinks about it um the question of beauty is one that uh has always been a compelling one for me i was always interested in the arts um in music and and painting when i was younger and um, the particular philosophers that attracted me were always those that gave special attention to beauty. When I wrote my um, uh, doctoral dissertation on Hondras from Balthazar, who uh, among the many things that he accomplished, one of the things is his introduction of beauty into giving it this central place in theology. And I realized that um, uh, it's interesting in the beginning of his uh, work where he does this, he mentions that uh, philosophers can only imagine uh, beauty is coming last, whereas for theology, it needs to come first. And I thought, you know, that's not true. I think philosophers also <laughs> can understand beauty is coming first and that that um, opens up uh, a way, in fact, of appropriating this um, first dimension that I mentioned, which is love as a matter of being as 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 resonating um uh throughout all the levels of existence not being simply an emotional thing or a matter of the will um i think there's a connection between those two points and that was go with this? Oh, that's the good. inspiration yeah. behind the book once okay. i started thinking about that okay so what he just said there made me think about uh, uh another clip in that one with the bad sound, I'm going to bring it up, but um, because it's okay. right in here when he talks about, um, yeah, the whole idea. Could, of, could um, I say something real quick? Yes. Before, uh-huh. I forget, before I forget. Um, so I think why it's so exciting to him is he's he's actually talking about, you know, beauty being like he's talking about love being the source of all things, you know that that's it's exciting in the sense I, I think what he's talking about is the materialistic paradigm shift i think he's going back to when he first realized this i mean i don't think if you talk to him uh, now, that he wouldn't he, that he would deny that god is love and god is being but i think what he's talking about is his initial paradigm shift you know the transformation that he had when he was young 
where he he realized that love is the source of all things versus you know a materialistic universe oh i've got it that's that's what i think because you watched that other one where he was talking about his uh you that's what i related you to oh okay so so and that is really radically different when you think about it because you go through life thinking that it's you know uh, whatever it is strings and quarks. That, that's what we talk about in the in the corner that it mm-hmm. isn't that in that in fact it's value or love or um that that's the source of all things in a christian sense god is the source of all things and god is love well and also um the other thing that i think takes a long time to internalize is what does what does it mean for me that God is love? What does it mean for me that that love is being? Because does that does that affect? Um, so hard to put into words. I know. <laughs> like I, I remember as a new believer being mm-hmm. told God loves you, and you're important to God, and that. I it didn't have any meaning for me. I didn't understand what that meant. Well, first of all, I don't think I knew what it meant to be loved. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a, a very good childhood. And um, I hadn't had relationships with other human beings where, where there was any sort of genuine love on their part towards me. Mm-hmm. And I certainly hadn't known how to genuinely love anybody else. And so when somebody says to me, God is love, um, it doesn't... It didn't say anything to me and to hear that love is being and it's ontologically true and all that it also doesn't have any meaning unless mm-hmm. unless you can somehow fig- bring it down to the yeah. the personal level which yeah. is what i kind of liked about this clip right here um okay. i think this is where it is I need to watch this one. Sorry, Aquinas observes that love designates a relation to goodness, he says, in its absolute sense, which is to say, in a sense that is in a fundamental respect, indifferent to the immediate presence or absence of the beloved object. What he means is that if I love something, I affirm it as simply good in itself, in a way that goes beyond its relativity to my own desires and needs. There's a free generosity of spirit that arises in this affirmation. And note, it's not the elimination of desire, uh, as we have, for example, arguably Kant's notion of disinterestedness, but it's an inclusion of desire in something something bigger. Uh, In love, you simply say to a person, the world is a better place because you, my beloved, exist. I don't know if you could hear that. Yeah. At the very end, he says, you simply say to a person, the world is a better place because you, my beloved, exist. Well, can you imagine that God looks at you that way? That God says to you, the world is a better place because you, my beloved, exist. And I think that is so hard for us to accept why would God feel that way about me that he would look at me and he would say, the world is a better place because you, my beloved exist. And he's using a lot of big words in here. And he, he used this big word in um, 
in his conversation with me too, gratuity. Mm-hmm. He kept talking about, well, it's gratuity. And, you know, in, in my mind, the only time I've ever heard the word gratuity is but you give somebody a tip, you know, yeah. gratuity. <laughs> um, and in a sense, that's what it means. We've taken, it, it used to mean um, to ensure promptness. You would give a tip because you would give a tip based on how well they did. Did they do a good job or they didn't do a good job? And then you'd give a tip based on that. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's become more and more of a gratuity, something that you simply do because it's maybe not even connected to the service. A lot of times the restaurant will just charge you the gratuity, even if, you know, uh-huh. regardless of the service. But he talks about gratuity being a non-possessive generosity of spirit. Mm-hmm. Love that comes not because of what you can give back, but simply because of the love of the giver of love. And that is the meaning of God is love. He is the giver of love. He gives it out of his generosity of spirit, his goodness. Um, not because of anything that I can give back, but simply because he loves But when he loves, what he says is, the world is a better place because you, my beloved, exist. And to me, that's really good news. (laughs) And and then to take that back to what he said earlier, that 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 love is a reception that transforms the appetite so as to be suited to the object. So if I can receive that love, it will transform me. So then I am prepared to, I am suited then, I am shaped in in order to be able to love back. Not only love God, but love others. Yeah. Right. And that's very interesting what you said. You know, um, if in childhood you don't learn that, you're not going to have, like you said, I, I wasn't loved and I didn't love back. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I suppose through positive life events and then, you know, being led to Christianity that you learned that. Yeah, it's a long road to learn. If you yeah. if you've never really experienced it, it's a long road because partly, you know, when when DC Schindler talked about when he first became a Christian, it was pretty much my head thing. Mm-hmm. It took him a long time to get it from the head to the heart because he, he grasped it intellectually and through insight and and it was beautiful to him and you know this whole connection we should go back because we didn't watch the rest of that clip where he talked about how his big insight that selfishness is the root of all our problems um when he he initially tried to just go the ascetic route of getting rid of all of his possessions and sleeping on the floor and and well yeah let's um, let's watch that yeah. But one thing I want to say before we move on from the beauty clip is, is that he says like beauty is, you know, I mean, it's sort of like first there's love and that's the essence, you know, that's the, that's totality. Mm-hmm. Then the interface sort of between you and the beloved is beauty. Like you, like God would find you beautiful. And as long as also with, th- with proclaiming that the world is a better place because you're there, he also sees you as beautiful. So if you love something, you see it as beautiful. 
And I well, think and then he's also he's also gifting this beauty out into the world so that that's what attracts us to things. I think when Jordan Peterson talks about this little golden thread that's out in front of you that it grabs your interest that draws you forward. I think that little golden thread is that beauty that's pulling you forward. Like when Esther Meek talks about you want to know how to do something because, because there's a beauty or a love or something that attracts you in the thing. Like this rose bush, I want to know how to take care of this rose bush because I've developed a love relationship with it. But that love relationship starts with this attraction to the rose bush. That the yeah, so that in in the all so that makes a lot more sense to me about what is meant by beauty. I think that's what he's talking. It's about. what's it's what attracts you. So if John says relevance realization, that's all. That relevance is the beauty, in a way. Is do you think that's right, or is that going too far? Is that taking the analogy too far? Well, I'm not an expert on John Verbeke's work. So I think I know what he means by relevance realization. Let me give you what I think, and then you tell me if I've got it right. That in this combinatorially explosive world that we look out at, um, certain things stand out to us that help us arrange our mind around them. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is this kind of moment of not necessarily insight, but it's a moment of it kind of snaps into place. Oh, that is what's important in this situation. But everything has its context in this situation. That's relevance. This is what's relevant in this moment. Out of the whole field of possibility. Yeah, so it's very precise. Whereas beauty is something you're attracted to. Yeah, I think beauty is not precise yeah. at all. You know, when... Um, when McGilchrist talks about the right hemisphere in his conversation with Peterson, he talks about the left hand and the right hand, the right hand is connected to the left hemisphere. The left hand is connected to the right hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Now he wasn't talking about left-handed and right-handed people. He was just using his hands yeah. as an example. Okay. Yeah. The, the right hand, the left hemisphere is very grasping. It points, it grasps, it very focused on what it wants. The left hand, the left hand is very exploratory. Yeah. Right. And so the left hand is sort of looking out over the whole horizon. Yeah. Similar to the, the, the McGilchrist says the reason that there are two hemispheres is that like a bird needs to be able to focus on that grain on the ground and figure out where the grain is in amongst all the rocks so that it can pick up that grain. Mm -hmm. That's the left hemisphere. Yeah. Meanwhile, the right hemisphere is aware of all the danger around it sure. to make sure that it's not going to get eaten by a hawk. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so the right hemisphere is exploring the territory. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if, other beings or creatures can experience beauty the way we experience beauty. But when we experience beauty, it's, it's this right hemisphere exploring the horizon and then certain things stand out, stand sort of I'm not even stand out, but it's sort of 
they're pleasing. Their language fails. They're sort of smeared, know, they're sort of smeared out over the horizon. You know, <laughs> they're pleasing, right? Yeah, uh, they, it, it evokes positive emotion, and and it's something that evokes positive emotion, you could say that's love. Yeah, and aren't there times when you look at something that is beautiful to you, but if you tried to explain to somebody else why it's beautiful to you, they would look at you like, yeah. why is that beautiful to you? Because it's it's not a thing. It's this it's, whole... Yeah, and that's very Persigian. It's everything that's come first. Everything that's come first in your, you know, in, in your existence is going to give you the context for what you're going to find beautiful next. Mm-hmm. So that's why some people have said to me that thing that I always talk about where I talk about my experiential DNA, everything that I've ever experienced and mm -hmm. read and listened to and seen and all of that is what forms my substance. And then that informs everything that I take oh, in. That's the that pattern of Aaron Wong. Yeah. Okay. So that's pure, that's piercing yeah. language. huh? See, people well. have said that that when I talk about how that thing in me is what perceives the new thing coming through, they say, yeah. oh, that's what Verveke means when he's talking about relevance realization. Mm -hmm. So what is relevant would be unique to each person that's in right. any situation, right? And, and I think that that's like, that's what's open-ended about, and, and this is where Schindler, I think is, that was his paradigm shift too, is it's not specific things in the universe you know that are already there it's that love is something that is a process in a way you know it's not it's not this is something to be loved and that's something not to be loved and everyone agrees you know there's a process called love that is that, that is going to be very different for everyone but the love itself is the same because that's you know god is love and Persig would say that that moment of quality when you perceive when you see when you pre-intellectually detect quality, it can be anything. But that moment of detection is exactly the same. And I think that that's the paradigm shift that's really important. Is it's like it's it that in the moment perception. And then things are made sense of after that versus the things are already there. And then you make sense of them after the fact. Or, or not, so, not, you don't make sense of them after the fact that there's some way of determining, you know, what they are versus does that kind of, I, I hope I'm okay, making, I got, I got a little bit lost there. Um, could I back up just a second to this idea of love being different for every person? Mm -hmm. Not not love itself in the moment. Love love is you know, love is everything. But the way it's felt and what is beloved is going to be you know it's going to be that contextual thing. Well, let's try to hammer this out because this is a question I've had for years. Okay. Because I became a Christian in 1980. Yeah, 1980. Wow. And uh, that was a time when, and, and one of the, I, I immediately got plunged into the political arena because I got elected to the legislature. Yeah. I got asked to run after, right after I'd become a believer. Mm -hmm. And then I got elected 
of, you know, six weeks after that. And then I'm in the political arena and very involved in the education battle. This battle mm -hmm. over education has been going on for a long yeah. time. <laughs> and I had a lot of parents coming to me with their concerns. And what was being pushed in the schools in Iowa at that time were two things. One was called values clarification. And the other one was called situational ethics. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you've heard of either of those. Um, values clarification was often taught through this idea of um, you have a bomb shelter and there's only room in the bomb shelter for 10 people. And there are 11 people standing outside the bomb shelter. Mm -hmm. And here are the qualifications of each of these people. I have heard of that, yeah. Okay. And which 10 people get in. And so kids are supposed to sit around and discuss, you know, is the 80 year old physics professor more valuable than the 25 year old uh, female tattoo artist? Yeah. Well, they're going to talk about, well, she's a female. She could potentially bear children. So she's more valuable, you know? So they, they make these, they make these determinations based on values it's very concerning. I mean, I, I don't think that's yeah. no, I agree. Yeah, school, I've, right? seen it. I've seen it in context with a lot of the culture work. Though. Yeah, that's, that's where I've seen yeah. it. And so it then the other thing was the situational ethics and situational ethics was I can't remember the guy's name who wrote the book, but he's talking about how love is situational. <clears throat> and um, sometimes even murder can be an act of love. And, you know, he can, he can explain it in a way that you're going logically like, yeah, yeah, I totally, see. you know, it's like Peter Singer with his idea of, you know, um, he's the guy who has some, I don't even, I, I just don't Peter Singer's name because they talk about him as being, uh, basically, if you took his ideas for real, there'd be genocide everywhere, you know, <laughs> um, that somehow intellectuals in the academy can sit around and imagine how to make things um, work. Like the, the big thing that was on the internet a few, couple of years ago was that you can prove that two plus two equals five. Oh yeah. If you do it the right way. Well, you see, so you can, if, if love is however you define it, then however each individual defines it, then some things you can look at as being a very loving act that are really not a loving act. So, so there has to be something about love that's solid. That Well, that's what I think. I think it is the most solid thing because the point is that when it hits you, you know what it is and you, before you've analyzed it, you know, mm -hmm. what, what if it hits you and you have some emotional response to somebody and you say, Oh, that's love. But that's love is actually an act. Love is an act. And, and the, the best description that we have of love in the Bible is Jesus Christ on the cross. That is love. So how would you differentiate the two? How would you differentiate this, this sense of beauty that attracts us and we love that and that's spontaneous and jesus on the cross is an act of love that seems to me two different things i mean that it, it seems to be oriented around love 
he does this because he loves us and you know so our sins will be forgiven but but it's a particular but it's like a you know it's it's an it's an act of it's an act of love that represents this bigger this this bigger understanding let's say like the love of god yes yeah i mean so so you want to differentiate no. the love of god from the human experience of love from the from the visceral experience of love that hits you versus the act of love of you know christ let's say the visceral experience of love that hits you is probably um i i remember years ago reading scott peck's book the road oh, yeah. travel but the road yeah yeah did you ever read it no he has a long section in there on something he calls cathexis. Mm -hmm. And cathexis is some sort of a biochemical neurological response that when you meet somebody and fall in love with them, it makes the sky more blue and the sun shine brighter and the clouds are just beautiful, you know, and, uh, and everything is more lovely because of this sense that's in you you're, you're just you're consumed by the beauty of the world because you have this cathexis mm -hmm. he says the problem with cathexis is that the purpose of cathexis is so that when you first get to know somebody you are you you stay in relationship with them even through the difficulties so that you can truly get to know them and then you can love them not for what they can give you or for who they are, but simply because of love. The problem with cathexis is it only lasts about six months. <laughs> now, I read that book because my, my husband, who I knew, I mean, I knew him as a friend before we started dating. He told me to read that book. So this is before we get married, right? And, uh, and I totally experienced this cathexis when I fell in love with him. And then about a week before we're supposed to get married, the cathexis went away. Okay, so now here I am and I'm with him and I'm like, who is this guy even? You know, uh -huh. what did I see in him? But hopefully during that six months, I developed enough of a trust that I could go through with the wedding, <laughs> which I did, you know, it was the right thing to do. But some people, maybe they get married three months after they fall in love and three months after they get married, they drop out of cathexis and like, what happened? I don't love this person because they're conflating love with this feeling, right? Love is not that feeling. Love is what you do for the other. Love is the, the sacrifice, the, mm -hmm. the permission, the, the way that you, you, you change towards each other so that you're a reception that transforms the appetite so as to be suited to the object. Mm -hmm. Okay, and read that again. A reception that transport. That, trans that transforms the appetite, appetite so as to be suited to the object. 
So these are things that change in us because of acting in love. So some people talk about it this way, that mm-hmm. um, you know that you're supposed to help the homeless or the poor people. But there's nothing in you that wants to do that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, for me, you know, at least there's, it's not a natural thing to me. Mm-hmm. If I see a homeless person on the street, it's not a natural thing to go up to them and, and talk to them or give them. But I know it's the right thing to do. So the more often I do it, the more I feel the sense of this is a good thing. The more I feel this sense of love towards people. Okay. So, so you're, you're, you're saying something like then that there is a, there is God's love. And that needs to be at the, then sort of like in the Peugeot sense, that needs to be at the top of the hierarchy so that all acts you do after that mold you to become more like him, more like him, which means the love, like what you know to be right, because God would say that this is right. because god loves because he is love because he's okay so because he's loving you unconditionally despite all your flaws and sees you as beautiful then you want to be that kind of person that gives the same kind of love so so you have to understand love in terms of god's love and that's the differentiation yeah and then the more that he the more that i can be transformed by his love it makes me more able to give that same kind of love that has no return. The, the other, to me, the other crystal clear picture of this is um, when I was in the legislature, one of my duties was to oversee the, the uh, appropriation for the state hospitals. Mm-hmm. In those days, they had state hospitals for indigent people. They had state hospitals for um mentally handicapped and they had state hospitals for the profoundly physically handicapped people and um myself and another legislator a woman who strangely enough was a methodist pastor and had been elected to the legislature but she had a very different view of the world than i did she and i had to go and visit this hospital for the profoundly handicapped Mm-hmm. And it was heartbreaking, just heart. I mean, these are children that are so profoundly handicapped that they have to have a special chair built to suit their body or a special wheelchair suited to their needs and very profoundly handicapped. And after we came back, she and I were having lunch together talking about this funding. And she said, don't you think it would have been better if they had never been born? Mm-hmm. This is why I'm I'm in favor of abortion. Right. And I said, um, well, no, I don't think it would be better if it, that's the same thing as saying that you could kill them now to give them a better, to make it better for them, you know? And she said, well, maybe that would be the best thing to do for them. It's so hopeless. Mm-hmm. And, and I contrast that with, I had just come back from a conference, a pro-life conference where there was a physician speaking about, um, some of these situations and why in his mind, at least why there are not necessarily why there are, but how we can understand these situations of profound handicap. Mm 
He said, as a physician, he said, that is where I most fully understand love. Because when I care for these children, there's nothing they can do for me. Nothing. Mm -hmm. So any act that I do for them cannot be returned to me. And that's the only time that I can love where I'm not where there's not some sort of agenda going on in my mind or thinking, you know, well, if I do this, I'm going to get that, you know, but to have this completely pure experience of loving someone that cannot give you anything back. A mother sort of feels that with the baby, but then babies are so cute, (laughs) you know? So, so even though they can't do anything for you, they're so cute. And so they fill Mm -hmm. that need in us, right? But where can you, where do you ever get that experience of being to just be able to give love when nothing can be returned? And this is Christ on the cross. When he looks out at all these people who called for his death and he says, father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's just this pure love pouring out of him, this pure forgiveness, not based on what people can do for him or anything, right? But that's a love that you have to develop. I mean, you that oh, like yeah. you naturally. So you have to, so this has to be part of your agenda, let's say, to become that kind of person who can love that way. I, I, I can it be, I, I don't know that that's even possible. I, it's not possible for me to love that way. But, but you're trying to, I mean, let's just say, you know, it's not about the goal. It's about trying to get better. I mean, I think, and, and Schindler was talking about this. Um, was that in your conversation? I, I think it was another one where he was saying there, maybe it was yours. He says there isn't perfect, you know, it's not, perf- it's never going to be um something about perfection it's never you know it's it's like you it's more it's more perfect it's never perfect it's just like there well, is this is like action. when paul when paul vanderclay talks about further up and further in yeah. yeah um you're familiar with uh the the asymptotic relationship in calculus Mm-mm. um when you're trying to find an answer in calculus you have this axis like this mm-hmm. you're trying to find this relationship and with calculus you can get closer and closer and closer and closer mm-hmm. and closer and closer and closer but you can never get to the axis yeah. Yeah. okay so this is what's called an asymptotic relationship it's and like that uh, Parmenides thing where the you know it's half and then half and then half yeah yeah kind of like that yeah so we can get closer but Mm -hmm. that's paul uses the terminology further up and further in Mm -hmm. so you move closer and then he draws you up further you move closer he draws you up further he's always in the process it's the quality thing it's always drawing you up closer you can never get to perfect quality but if you're willing to draw close then you're going to be lifted up right and, and lift it up and closer and closer. And so I don't think it's a matter of something I can try to do. It's a matter of being loved by him and, um, and then just being obedient to what he tells me and then being loved by him and being obedient to what he tells me. And, and, uh, 
and there's times in life when I feel like I'm way further away from that yeah, goal than I was, you know, even last year or five years ago. And then there's other times when I feel like, oh, yeah, I'm closer. Mm-hmm. But I think in all of that, there's some sort of purpose that even the times when I'm further away are times that he's teaching me something, maybe showing me something about myself or something that has to get peeled off or scraped away or something. Um, but in all of that is his act of love towards me. I think people misinterpret the hard times as being times when God has gone away. I don't think that at all. I think those are the times when he's he's refining because he loves me. You know, when you really love someone, you don't let them muck around in addiction and yeah, no, that's true. You know, bad behavior and so forth because you love them. You want them to have you know a better life. So, yeah. Well, thank thanks for explaining that to me. No, I appreciate it. I I don't know if I can explain anything, but but anyway, you wanted to. Uh, you also wanted to talk about that that very last clip, or do you want to? Um, well, let's talk do a about couple. the being let's and hear. becoming. Let's do being and becoming, and then the last clip, and that should take us to the end. Okay. Oh, I got to share screen. I'm always doing this backwards. And uh, being and becoming. Right. Right. But you can't say impassable about someone who gave his life on the cross. And That's right. Right? So I, I should say first, this impassable word is something that I think Michael taught me. It means um, unchangeable, sort of. It means in the sense of passion being mm-hmm. permitting impassable would be not permitting any change Mm -hmm. and so when some people describe being as opposed to becoming they describe being as being impassable not changeable immutable um and so i was trying to get him to talk about the is there a hard difference between being and becoming? And is, is there something about either of those that we should be concerned about? And so then this, that's where he starts in on this. So let me back it up again a little bit. Completely changeless or, and, and Michael, I've had, and I've had this conversation before about what it means to be impassable. Right. Right. But you can't say impassable about someone who gave his life on the cross. And that's right. Right. So yeah, um, yes, or or the, the the father of the church said the impassable one is has suffered. The impassable one is passable, mm-hmm. and uh, excuse me, that's Plato said something similar about being that it's simultaneously changeless and full of change. I think that's those are the and that's what be- beauty is 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 both um, activity, openness playfulness and and rest and completeness that the that the 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 deepest starting point needs to be needs to refuse to choose between one and the other that somehow has to see a unity of both because otherwise as 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 you were saying this you know if you to have a sense of a lack you you already have to have some sense of what you ought to be there's um uh otherwise um uh, there, there couldn't be a lack. You only experience a lack if you have some sense of the fullness that you that you want to attain, that you need to attain. And so, change happens 
only when you have something that transcends um, and you know you have transcendence and image. So you have kind of perfection and incompleteness together. You have you have um, something eternal and something and and time. So so I don't know if I'm making sense here, but well, I you think are. But I, I mean, to really is, see them I, together. I'm sorry to kind of take over, Michael. Sure. <laughs> this is like super important to me because okay. um, I've also looked into quite a bit of like Whitehead's work. Okay. Um, but the thing that has always troubled me a bit in Whitehead is this idea that that God is uh, he doesn't put it this way, but like trying to find himself or something. Yeah, that's and, right. And this idea of you know the becoming meaning yes, yes, some sense of what you want to be, and then maybe that's even built into the structure of the universe. But then there's some idea that that the whole process of the world is god becoming what he wants to be and is that is that but right I, that doesn't uh, there's something that no, doesn't sound right about yeah that. no only if he's already perfect see that's that's the the you um uh, what i tend to react to is if if someone wants to um uh, uh thinks that the only way to to introduce openness and movement and life is precisely to eliminate perfection um so that, oh, that, that that he's headed towards perfection so so perfection is something that only comes at the end and i, I, I think i think there's got to be a sense of perfection in, in the beginning you know this yeah, is yeah you know uh, one of the themes in neoplatonic philosophy is the is the the the, the movement of the cosmos is an over flow of perfection mm -hmm. rather than an emptiness that's trying to fill itself up wow that was so good isn't that good you know yeah, so, so when i'm a... when i'm on the other side listening to this i can't take it in because my i'm yeah you've got right? to work <laughs> and to hear him uh, thank you yeah. for pointing that out to me <laughs> so good well it's so interesting because he's really talking about that exchange between dynamic and static that's happening all the time like well, I was like, going to ask you, that sounds like person, right? When it does. Talk. I mean, patterns happen, you know, and then, <clears throat> and they become they they become acknowledged as patterns, but they're always changing. You know, even us as human beings, we're always updating ourselves in one way or another, and it's always towards this perceived perfection. But you don't know what that perfection is, although you have an idea of it. Let's just say, you mm -hmm. know, as as let, let's say let's say you know, imitation of Christ, which you were talking mm -hmm. about. So, so you have a, that that perception of being closer and closer to that idea of what Christ is, and updating yourself, and then getting to a point where you know you're you're at a static point where you're doing this kind of work and you're imitating Christ, and then something happens to you where you feel like, no, that's not quite enough. I see Christ differently now. It's mm -hmm. the same Christ, you know. The perfection, mm -hmm. you know, is still towards perfection, but your sensibility of what per is perfection has changed. As you update with, you know, as new information gives you this idea of going towards perfection now looks like this. Mm -hmm. So, you're, you know, so the, the pattern happens. It has to, you have to have patterns in order to operate in the world. You can't just be floating around, you know, mm -hmm. in a mystical state, never eating anything. You know, you have to, you have to be grounded in patterns, but they update when you perceive something is better. 
And that's what I think being and becoming is. And that's what he's saying, that if something's completely static, then woe to that pattern. It's just going to disintegrate. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to update it. There's nothing to keep it alive. Mm -hmm. It's just going to die and, and dissipate. And that's why the the perfect, it has to start with the perfect, but then that perfect um well, if God is love itself and, in the patterns and then the patterns yeah. come back up to the perfect again. So this is always it, there is a becoming in yeah. that, but it's always, always moving yeah. back towards perfect. And they will express themselves like, let's just say, you know, if the beauty opens you up to the perfection, the patterns themselves will have a beauty. They'll have a residual beauty. And this is what he was talking about in the first book. There's beauty is going to be the expression of what that process created towards perfection and that the beauty drew you in and the patterns is created in that act let's say you were talking about the act of love the act creates you know the the desire the appetite for the perfection creates a pattern to 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 pin it down and then in that pattern you'll see the beauty expressed like when you know when you see when when the when the um the person you were talking about that i think it was a, a pastor who said that he sees beauty in these damaged children mm -hmm. yeah yeah because because well it's the only place where he feels that he can truly love because he knows that there's no there's no payoff yeah right so um, he'll see beauty in that because he'll say this is the place where i can truly love but that's like a very high level, you know? Yeah, yeah. But even if you're, you know, like, like that desire for beauty and you're, you're composing something and as the beauty, as the, as the appetite for the beautiful helps you compose, then the composition itself is beautiful. So it's within and without. So being is a beautiful object. Becoming is the beauty creating and updating the object. Wow. We should write that down. <laughs> well, it's it's just it's I mean it's pure person. And that's why I liked what he said. Mm -hmm. And and it's so funny now that I know, you know, that was his inspiration. I just hear so much of it and everything he says. <laughs> what but, I'd really like is for, you know, because I there's no way I can do this. Um, I'd really like to talk to him about being a play, you know, being so interested in Plato, what he thinks of what person said about Plato as being the, the problem. Although Persig didn't really say that. Phaedrus says that. Mm -hmm. So what does Phaedrus say about Plato being the problem? He says that, um, he says that the rhetoricians, you know, the, um, the sophists created their, you know, their, um, exposit their, their 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 rhetoric based on beauty based on excellence based on the best speech and um and plato's plato in a particular dialogue says okay well explain to me why this is the best and that's that meant that the dialectic the explanation of why like it was subserve it was making beauty subservient it has to be explained it can't just be, it can't just flow out of someone's understanding of excellence. 
and so that Plato made the dialectic more important than the rhetoric. And then, and that Western understanding from then on, and, and I'm doing my best to explain this, you know, <laughs> but Western understanding from then on started the problems with, you know, going into the materialistic way of thinking that we're now in started with that, started with truth first and then beauty, you know, like, like quality under truth. Okay, so this is really interesting. So then explain to me, I've always known that the word sophist is a pejorative, but what was it about the sophist that makes us use that word now as a pejorative? Oh, that's sophistry, people will say. So that's oh, a, I, that, I, I don't know. I've looked it up. I don't understand, really. Do so. you understand what the sophists believed at the, in the beginning? I mean, you, you said that Plato was... According to, to the according, according to Phaedrus in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Media. Okay, okay. <laughs> the sophists, the, the um, rhetoricians, the pre-Socratics believed in excellence above everything. Okay, so... Quality so... <laughs> first, um, not dialectical truth. Not something where you can go, well, is it this? No, is it that? No. Oh, okay, it's this. Oh, okay. So, so Plato put truth at the top of the hierarchy, uh, yeah. and the pre-Socratics put excellence at the top of the hierarchy, That's right. and they were before him. And he decided that to make things, um, it was something like this is, <laughs> it was something like this is the way we kind of have to go, you know. So Plato, in in the view of Phaedrus, Plato was the beginning of the the materialist turn, basically. Exactly. Or the or the beginning of one of the left hemispheres grabbing. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. So um, <clears throat> one of the things that Schindler said in that clip mm -hmm. was, "You have to have. There must be some sense of what you ought to be." Um, I don't remember what, what his context was there, but he was talking about the, um, we are simultaneously where there's perfection, there's also incompleteness, where there's the eternal, there's also time and uh, changeless and full of change. These things are working together. And he says, so then he goes on to say something like that you must have some sense of what you ought to be as though that's sort of built into us. And that's what and, you were talking about. Well, it, what it struck me about that was at um, in the message a couple of weeks ago at church, the woman who was teaching was talking about uh, Jesus sermon on the Mount, where he talks about the hunger for righteousness mm -hmm. And she was making the point that we are all born with a hunger for righteousness. Mm -hmm. She said, if it were not so, um, we wouldn't have any idea of, of um, striving for anything. We wouldn't have any idea of what's better or not better. And that made me think about Jordan Peterson and how he says that meaning precedes matter. Yeah. That um, the capacity for value judgment precedes matter. And, and so this idea of a hunger for righteousness is 
is that capacity for value judgment. Because what it's basically saying is that righteousness is what we are, we're called to move into, to move towards. Justice. So, um, in, in righteousness, um, justice is more like a measurement. Righteousness is what justice is measuring against, I think. If you think of righteousness, it's like right standing. It's like the uh, connection, the complete, like like the asymptotic relationship. Yeah. So here's righteousness. That That's Christ himself. He is our righteousness. That's what the scripture says. Right. And here is me and justice is measuring the distance between me and this is why when when they talk about carpenter is a carpenter is always justifying his his tool yeah is measuring how close his tool comes to reality or uh, the plumb line is a is a form of justifying something so justice is this measurement of how close you're getting to righteousness mm -hmm. but we have this hunger to get close to righteousness mm -hmm. that's built into us from the beginning. Right. We take different paths and sometimes the path we take is completely the wrong path, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe we're going this way. Yeah. I just thought that was really interesting when he said that, that some sense of what you ought to be is somehow built into us from the beginning. That's why a baby that's why little children will watch something over and over and over again that they're trying to get to. They'll, they'll try over and over and over. They have some sense. I'm supposed to be able to walk. I'm looking at these other people. They can get places faster yeah. than I can. So I'm going to try over and over and over again, regardless of how much I suffer, no matter how many times I fall, I'm going to keep trying. Right. Mm -hmm. That's built into them to, yeah. to, and, and, and uh, something happens to us as we get into adulthood where we get less compelled to, to do that move, right? Mm -hmm. But I wonder if that's what Persig is talking about when he talks about the pre-Socratics putting excellence at the top. It's this, this hunger for righteousness that's built into us that gives us this connection this possibility yeah, it, for connection. I think it could be. I, I mean, I've certainly, I'd have to think about it and I'd have to go over and read that section again. It's in chapter 29. But, you know. I need to read that book, you know. I have, I've got so many books that I've started. And I'm great book. so far behind. So shall we go to the last clip? Yes, and yes. Let's go to that last clip. Mm -hmm. Because this is what reminds me of you and of, of our last two talks. The ineffable versus the embodied. Right, right, right. Yeah, that that um, um, that uh, rather than being this absolute that is simply discontinuous with anything in our experience or anything in our capacity or 
um, you know, beyond the the simply beyond the limits of the finite world. I mean, to, to, this sort of circles back to the theme of postmodern thought. There's so much in postmodern thought that, in order to be sort of radical, um, especially postmodern thought in in uh, philosophy of religion, to be radical is to uh, emphasize over and over again how different God is from our conceptions that we we can't you know any any word that we try to use falls short that God infinitely transcends our our language our thoughts and so forth and and that that seems to be um, kind of a radical recognition of the of the reality of God but you know um, that that ends up this is I, th I think this is one of these kind of self self-deceptive moves uh that really does make god totally irrelevant to anything in the world and so it kind of relieves the world of any any burden of dealing with god it, it seems to me it's a, it's a far more radical thing to think of god as having entered into you know he fitted himself to us first <laughs> so so in fact our words do matter because he has entered into he is the word has mm -hmm. entered into human words, has entered into the human condition. And in fact, um, uh, you know, this would be one of the insights that Balthazar um, uh, is known for. Um, you know, he's gone sort of further below anything, any sort of abasement and, and disorder that humans can contrive, that the, the, um, entry into the taking up of the cross is sort of outflanking us from below if you will um you know that's a much more radical sense and and that does not at all compromise god's infinite perfection and infinite distance from us mean quite the contrary um but it does um it does sort of unmask this effort to to keep him out of of the world it sort of brings the the whole drama uh, right into the heart of our existence, and also then, therefore, into the really the ordinary things of our life. You, you know, things like raising a two-year-old. You can't get much. <laughs> that was so good. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's not. You know, I mean, that's that is, of course, make making a case for, um, for, you know, your the the embodied and the personal. That you and Jonathan and uh, Dave Schindler, you know, versus I mean, I, it it looks like my perception is more in that postmodern <laughs> arena, or at least the way I've been trying to express it. So that also is is you know because I'm having such a a struggle getting a handle on the personal God versus this more postmodern. I'm I know I come from that tradition, so. You know, I come from the, I, I, I grew up in that, you know, era. Um, I've been influenced by Eastern philosophy. So there, so there's a lot of that there that's, that's still, I'm having difficulty understanding the personal and he really made sense of it there. Yeah. And, and I, I think, <clears throat> I think one of the things that's a big mystery and that's very hard for us all to get a grip on is if you start with the the uh, pre-Socratic idea that excellence is at the top, mm -hmm. which no doubt is true. I mean, there's a, probably a whole lot of things at the top. <clears throat> everything at its polar best, everything at its infinite best is yeah. in that transcendent 
perfection. Um, but then if, if that's all you focus on, then there's no way that there can be any relationship between me and that. I mean, come on, it's impossible. Right. So, so that the self-deception there is that makes it very easy for me to give myself a way out. Yeah. No. And, and yeah, and I think that's right. And I think that, that, um, that, that way out is the way that people who can't and John Rebecca would be one of these people, I think can't um, really get a grip on the personal God, but they can get a grip on um, the one, the ultimate um, and, and Persig wasn't a Christian. He was a Zen Buddhist. Mm-hmm. And so, in in his eyes it was enlightenment itself opening up to the nature of reality that was the ultimate so you didn't have that um that you didn't have that embodiment that you have in christianity Mm -hmm. so it's it's two different ways of seeing it which is a lot of what this corner is about too an estuary Mm -hmm. it's like taking an absolute genuine belief in that being the highest and coming together and they're different and maybe someone can't bridge the gap, but maybe they can. Well, so my question is, what happens if if excellence is, at, and this is going to come out really badly, I know, but if excellence is at the top, mm-hmm. and I, I, have, I have two ways to go. I can either say, that's too much for me, man. I'm just going to go uh-huh. smoke weed. Or uh-huh. the other side of me is going to say, yes, excellence, in order for me to connect to that excellence i have to be excellent Mm -hmm. and then you have the stoic um Mm -hmm. then you have the striving you have the jocko willink you know 4 40 in the morning he's out there also what dc schindler himself was trying to do initially he was doing the aesthetic practice oh yeah um, yeah that's true right so so um then in my kind of personality, at least, if that's if that's what it is, I just get hopeless. I can't for a little while. I can keep that up, get on the treadmill and do the thing, you know, and then and then I fall off, and then okay, now am I not? You know, I, I I'm I'm nowhere. So i don't understand how it works if you don't have a personal connection to god that's based on his unconditional love for me i don't know how it works because otherwise i'm just hopeless mm-hmm. i can't achieve excellence yes excellence we're called to excellence you know mm-hmm. reach out and in for the high calling of god in christ jesus and mm-hmm. run the race and all of those things that is that is our calling and that is because we know that that is what's in our best interest that that's that's how we're going to have the best life and also that all makes sense to me i totally get that but what happens when i fail on that score and i'm not achieving then am i no longer i think it'd be something like i think it'd be something like what what um well person would say is what the what is the best way to go in this moment you know, because and and Jordan Peterson would say something like, "Be the, you know, when everything falls apart, be the one, you know, that doesn't fall apart." 
or strive to be the one like if if you know if, if someone if your wife just died strive to be the one who um helps others feel you know who 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 does you know be the be the one at the your dad's funeral who greets the guest you know who, who handles themselves the best strive for that and i think that person would say that too is whatever the context whatever the situation, no matter how abysmal it is, what's the best choice you can make? It's kind of like the Viktor Frankl thing, you know, where, where is, where, what can you give to this horrible concentration camp situation? So, and that's, and, and, and when I see it in that light, it makes it difficult, you know, because I'm sort of <laughs> in between these two philosophies. I can see the merit of them both. And and well, I understand that, that's the same picture of Jordan Peterson talking about taking your cross and climbing up the hill yeah. to the city of God, right? Yeah, it so, means the same thing. It's just it's not done through the Christian lens with a well, just forget the Christian lens. Just take pick up your burden and carry it up the hill. That's what Jordan Peterson was saying five years ago. Right? And, and I think that's what Persig would he, per, that's more directive than Persig sure. because maybe in, in that context, carrying your burden wouldn't be the quality choice. Yeah. But so but but in that in that particular situation where carrying a burden is a quality. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So so the difference then between that and what DC Schindler is talking about is that in the in the christian context jesus says take my yoke upon you for um, my my yoke is easy and my burden is light mm -hmm. so the yoke is what the two oxen or cattle would bear the yoke together and then they would move ahead and they would plow together obviously if i'm in the yoke with christ he's doing all the work pretty much he's given <laughs> yeah. me an opportunity right. to come along mm -hmm. and do as much as i can do just like you would with your child when you're teaching them how to do something you let them help and then they feel like they're purposeful right well the other day i ran into this thing about the yoke that i thought was so interesting somehow i got looking at the in the old testament where it talks about breaking the bands of the yoke mm -hmm like freeing people from um, prison or freeing them from slavery or whatever. They use this terminology, breaking the bands of the yoke. So I was looking it up and the, the yoke itself is this big, strong piece of wood that has two curves in it for the animals head yeah. to come under that. The bands are, are these kind of loops that come down underneath the yeah. chin of the animal connecting up through the yoke. Yeah. There's these two bands like that. Mm-hmm. Well, if you break the bands of the yoke, there's nothing holding you to the yoke anymore. Right. The only way you stay in the yoke is voluntarily mm -hmm. because of a love relationship with the other one that's in the yoke with you. Right. There's nothing holding you there. And then the other thing that happens is because there's nothing holding you there, anytime you get a little bit out of line, it's going to fall off. <laughs> so the way that you stay in the yoke together is to to you have to be stepping together staying on the same path and then then the yoke is natural and it's easy and it's voluntary and and it, you're still producing the same the same quality 
but you're doing it together. To me, that's the big difference between. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that makes sense. I always talk too much, Savilla. I have you on <laughs> here to talk. <laughs> I talk too much. <laughs> I wanted to tell you something really exciting that I hope we can talk about next time. Well, next time will be right. I guess it'll be before Chino. Yeah. Um, okay. I made a big discovery recently. Mm -hmm. I was reading Owen Barfield's Speaker's Meaning again in preparing uh -huh. for DC Schindler. Mm -hmm. And in here, he talks about a guy named E.L. Grant Watson and his book, The Mystery of Physical Life. It's an old book, mm -hmm. pretty much out of print, I think. But I managed to find one used on okay. Amazon. So I bought it, The Mystery of Physical Life. Mm -hmm. Super interesting book. Like from the early because, um, it's not very thick. No, it's, it's pretty, and, and it's pretty easy to read. Right. There's really good descriptions in here of the way plants work and the um, symbiotic relationship between parasites and plants and between um, insects. And you know, I mean, it's just when you read some of this stuff, you're like, there's no way that that could just happen by accident, you know, super interesting. But then in the, uh, he also talks about this guy named George Adams, who developed a system called projective geometry mm -hmm. or was part of the movement of developing projective geometry. And um, so then I found a couple of um, archived books online from George Adams. I mean, his stuff is not published anymore either. And in these archived books, um, I think it's, well, of course, and now it's gone. Well, there it is. Okay, I'm going to share my screen just really quick because I think this is so cool. You see that? Especially this one over here. Mm -hmm. Remember how I've been trying to talk about these polarities and how there's so many of them? Mm -hmm. If you weave all these polarities together, you're actually getting close to substance. Yeah, isn't that and, right? And that's when he's talking about projective geometry, he's talking about these polarities being projected into space, infinite polarities being projected into space and the interweaving of them producing substance. And I just blew my mind. Like <laughs> he was talking about this like 80 years ago and, and it's got all these illustrations. It's just so thrilling. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. And, and to, to just, because I followed the thread, you know, the little glimmer was out there. Like, yeah, you followed the quality track. Yeah. <laughs> so next month we all find something to talk about. And yes, we uh, will. I will try to find something where I can ask you questions. So you do all the talking next time. Okay. <laughs> well, this is a great talk. I really appreciate it. Good talking to you, Sybil. Okay. Thanks, Kara. Take Bye. care. Bye.